0: Ciao, this is Lucas. Welcome to the Toast of the Wild East, a podcast from vicious Toastmasters willing to raise their game. In this podcast, I interview guests willing to share their insights about applying what they learn in Toastmasters in their professional career to help you do the same. You'll get updates about new episodes and daily Toastmasters tips if you follow at ToastWild on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. My guest today is John Zimmer keynote speaker, presentation skills trainer and public speaking coach. John is also a nine-time district winner in Toastmasters speech contests, member of an improv troupe and a blogger at mannerofspeaking.org, where he wrote more than 800 blog posts on public speaking over the past 13 years. John is one of the public speaking trainers I truly admire, and I was so happy when he accepted the invite to be on the podcast.
1: John, welcome to the show. Lucas, great to be here, thanks for having me.
2: John, in the very beginning, I thought it would be great if you give a hint to anybody who'd be listening to this, what was your process of switching from being a hobby speaker to being a professional speaker?
1: I began my career as a lawyer in a big law firm in Toronto, Canada, where I'm from. And I had a real advantage in that my firm allowed young lawyers to go to court all the time. So I was often on my feet speaking in front of courts and tribunals. And that was a great experience. I moved to Geneva, Switzerland in 1998 because I had a fantastic opportunity to work in the United Nations system. And over the course of a 17-year career there, I was again, as a lawyer, often speaking in meetings, at conferences, at big events. And along the way... I started getting asked by other people you can you give me advice on this presentation can you give me advice on that presentation and at one point i thought you know maybe i could make a living out of this because i enjoy speaking to people with people i enjoy sharing ideas being involved in big events and what i did was while i was still in the united nations system I started teaching at a few universities, a, a couple of universities here in Switzerland, and that went well. And at one point it was, I think it was 2013. I actually, I actually tendered my resignation from the World Health Organization where I was at the time. And I wanted to make a go on my own. And they came back to me, the, the WHO came back to me and they said, would you consider working part-time? and which was an unexpected surprise. And so I said, yes. And we had an arrangement where I worked 50% of my time at the WHO and 50% of my time on my own. And I did that for one year. And it was, it was a great opportunity because it gave me the chance to explore and try things out while at the same time having the stability of a regular salary. But at the end of a the year, they wanted me to come back full time and I didn't want to go back full-time. And I also realized that, as is the case with many things in life, if you want to really make an impact, you have to go all in. You can't do... I couldn't be 50% for an organization and 50% on my own because I wouldn't achieve what I was capable of achieving in either. So I made the jump in, I believe, my last day at the WHO was in 20, early 2015. And ever since then, I've been an independent public speaker.
2: Mm -hmm. And looking back at it now, eight years later, how are you feeling about it?
1: Oh, no regrets at all. In fact, I'm very glad with the jump that I made. Don't get me wrong. I miss my colleagues, my friends. That was a great aspect of working in the UN system. It's fascinating because you're working with people from all over the world. But the ability to be your own boss, the ability to choose the work that you want to do there's there's nothing like it and one of the things i love about being a professional speaker is that no two weeks are the same this week for example i've had two online courses that i've taught and i've got the podcast with you and i have something else online tomorrow the week before I was three days working in Barcelona, Spain, face to face with the client next week i 'll be doing something different, so there 's this variety which keeps things interesting
2: mm-hmm. and I, I guess you enjoy that
1: oh very much, very much. The only downside <laughs> the only downside uh-huh. is I get to work with so many terrific people, but yeah. sometimes it 's only for two days, two, three days at a time, and it 's very intense and then we go away, and sometimes I don't see them for months or even years, and then our paths yeah. will cross again, and they'll say, mm-hmm. "Hey, John," and I'll say, "Hey, <laughs> you." And I used to try, I used to try and and fake it that I knew the name without saying it, and then at one point I said, "This is stupid." I would then I would just say, "I'm sorry. Remind me of your name." Uh huh. Uh-huh.
2: I I I can understand that, and I know that with a couple of. Professional speakers like yourself, Florian, Olivia, and a couple of others. I can understand that you are exactly in that tricky situation. And that, that leads me also, you said that you were considering that to make making the switch in your career after your colleagues at work started asking you to help them with their presentations. I imagine that it was already during the time where you were in Toastmasters. New York, did you so, okay, so did you gain your speaking experience? in toastmasters mainly or was there something even before toastmasters that got you interested in public speaking
1: it was before toastmasters as i said being a lawyer and being in court a lot and being on my feet and having to construct an argument and having to speak persuasively to a court really got my interest going in public speaking having said that i joined toastmasters i think it was the summer or the fall of 2007 so some time Mm -hmm. ago Mm -hmm. and what i liked about toastmasters besides the atmosphere and meeting people and the networking opportunity was the fact that it's a real public speaking laboratory where you can test things and try things out and I'm still a member these days. And when I, when I speak with younger members, people who are just starting their public speaking journey, one of the things I tell them is when it comes to Toastmasters, don't try and be perfect. In fact, mm-hmm. what you should try and do is experiment. If there's something that you were hesitating doing in a presentation at work, try mm-hmm. it out here because this is where you can actually test things and see what works, what doesn't.
2: Yeah, that, that, that's true. And I think it's sometimes it's even a pity when people try to do template-like speeches in Toastmasters. Sometimes I would see it even in contests. And what I admire about you and a couple of speeches I saw you deliver, never, never live on, on district level, but um, I saw a couple of them in recording. And I think a couple of them were really brilliant. In partic- particular, my personal favorite is the one pay attention. When you were introducing some... Uh, let's say reinvigorated those masters education program would you of course i will give link in the show notes to anybody who would like to watch it but what what i'm curious about is of course if you could like briefly describe what that's about maybe without giving away too many spoilers but i was always well, i always wanted to ask you i mean how did john come up with this stuff
1: that was one of the funnest speeches i did if i remember correctly that was in bamberg and at the district conference, and it was the humorous speech contest. Uh, wait, let me just. Da, 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 da. Yes, pay attention. Yes, that was with the. Uh, this was where I made, I made a bit of a, a, bit of fun at at Toastmasters, just poking fun at the organization, and there it involves an impersonation of Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'll just say. <laughs> I'll just leave it there and let people <laughs> let people think what they will. In terms of how that idea came to me, it's funny, and, and this is stepping back as just a general principle for speeches. Sometimes a speech comes so easily. And that was one of those speeches. The idea just popped into my head: what if what if Arnold Schwarzenegger, as the Terminator, were a Toastmaster? And <laughs> the speech really it just it really wrote itself I kid you not I probably had the basic text which did not change much from club to district I probably had that in less than two hours Mm -hmm. and it just it was just there at the same time there have been other speeches that I've given both in Toastmasters and outside of Toastmasters where it was a real struggle to, to knit ideas together to decide, do I add this story? Do I not add this story going back and forth? So it, it's really hit and miss. Sometimes speeches come quickly and sometimes they don't.
2: When you are describing the, the process or maybe the way how you are getting ideas, what I think that very often in those masters, we see the public speaking part, or especially guests who comes to a meeting that they see, okay, there are people speaking on the stage. But I believe there is a lot more that's under the surface that what we see on the stage is just the tip of the iceberg and that most of the work is done in the preparation. And I think anybody who ever tried to prepare a speech, experienced that. What I'm curious about is when you are preparing your speeches, how do you do it? Do we have a process for that? Or is it, are you waiting for a strike of inspiration? How do you write your speeches?
1: Well, this is when I when I work with clients in in the business context, I I take them through a process that I have been using for a long time, and I try to just turn it into a formal process that I think is very helpful for helping. It's very helpful when it comes to getting the ideas clear in your mind about what you want to say. So it's a four step process, and very quickly, step one involves thinking about the relationship between you and the subject, the audience and the subject, and then you and the audience. And you think about these three relationships and you make notes about each. The second step involves being very clear about the objective. Now in a speech contest, clearly the objective is to win. Uh, It's certainly one of the objectives. But how people can apply this in their day-to-day work when you're you're delivering a presentation, ask yourself, what do I want the audience to do when I'm finished speaking? Do I want them to know something or do I want them to take some action, which is always the most powerful when you can move them to take some action. And if it's action that you want them to take, is there a simple first step that you can get them to do? It might be something as simple as open up your cell phones and diarize sometime next week to do whatever it is you're talking about. The third step is to be clear on the message. And for that part of the process, the challenge that I give to my clients is to write their entire speech or presentation out in a single sentence. And like we were just saying about speeches, sometimes the sentence comes easy and sometimes the sentence comes hard. But it's always worthwhile because once you know what the essence of your speech or presentation is, then as you build it with statistics or a story or an anecdote or whatever, just ask yourself, does it support the the message? And then the final step in the process is to be clear about the relevance of the message for your audience, or to put it another way, why should the audience care? Because as you know very well, Lucas, it's never about the speaker, it's always about the audience. So I do have this process, and I do apply it
2: even in a a
1: Toastmaster speech.
2: When you, when you mentioned the third step is being clear on the message, at what point does this point become clear? This, is it before you write the, the whole speech out or is it is it after? Is it somewhere in the middle? Is it an iterative process?
1: it typically it's before i want to be very clear as i start to build the speech what is my message to the audience so in almost all cases it's before having said that as a speech evolves especially the ones where you where i struggle a bit with the topic and i go back and forth there may come a point in time where i look at what i've got and i think you know what this might actually be better with a different message Mm-hmm. It's not often, but it can happen. And in that case, then I go back to this process because then I have to ask myself, well, what is the relevance of this new message for the audience?
2: Mm-hmm. What I is see. the
1: relationship to that? So you can always go back to that first exercise if things change.
2: You mentioned that it's always about the audience, not the speaker. And a couple of times when I saw you present at a conference, or going to prepare for a conference, I noticed that or you really give the impression that you really do care about the audience and you go the extra mile to connect with your audience. I remember, for example, at the conference in Rome, I believe it was maybe 2015 or 2014 or 2015, that you, first of all, you gave the part of a keynote in Italian Mm-hmm. But, but also you commented on some recent events. Maybe it was something about uh, the Ita- Italy's football team or something like that. And then when I saw you at a different event, you 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 did something similar. Maybe it was in, in Brno, in the Czech Republic, at a division conference or in Prague. Ooh, is Is it important to do things like that? Because it must take you quite a lot of effort to add, you know, these personalized things for specific audiences
1: it's very important in my opinion i think that too often speakers especially young speakers they 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 make the mistake the understandable mistake about focusing too much on themselves how do i look Mm -hmm. what are they going to think what do i do with my hands where do i go here this the other thing these are it's normal to do that but what i tell people is the moment that you put all your focus outward on the audience and what you want to tell them then what happens is you forget about yourself and you become a whole lot more natural. Generally speaking, I'm, I'm very interested in people, in, in cultures, in, in where people are from. If I meet somebody and you know, one of the first questions I ask is, where are you from? and if they start telling me well i work in such and such a department at such and such a company i say no 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 <laughs> no i don't care about that where are you from i'm mm-hmm. interested in what languages you speak what culture you're from any any mixed culture that you're from and that always fascinates me as well so coming back to speeches i think it it really helps a speaker connect when you can talk about things with which the audience is already familiar It. It's always worth the investment. And I always tell tell speakers that the three most important words that any speaker can say are I, you, and we. And each is different, but the word you, or the concept of you, is something that always gets the audience to lean forward a little bit. Because if I'm in the audience and the speaker says, now, I'm going to tell you, you know, here's a way that you can do X. Well, mm-hmm. if she says that, she's talking about me and I'm interested in me. So I want to hear what she has to say. Mm-hmm. So this is an example of of the power of very simple words. But beyond that, yes, I, I have no problem. It is work. It does take time to do the research, but I love it. I enjoy it a lot. And for me, it doesn't feel like work. I also learn, I always end up learning something new anyway.
2: hmm I see so maybe it's also your specific to you because you are interested in the culture. So for you doing that research as maybe a bit of a hobby as well, you're you're interested in that yourself.
1: I think I think that's I think that's fair. I think you could say that.
2: And and maybe somebody who's like really narcissistic and takes selfies all the time, then maybe they spend more time on it. <laughs> <laughs> putting the makeup on before the presentation.
1: Yeah, or... exactly. Fortunately, I, I don't need a lot of makeup, and a lot of makeup wouldn't help anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: a, yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's good to know what are the what are the key um, elements to spend your time on when it comes to preparation. When we shift our focus from just speaking, and we stay with the topic of writing, you have. blog that's focused on public speaking. The address is mannerofspeaking.org. Am I saying it right? Yep. Perfect. uh, Again, I, I will share the link in the notes. How did that idea come to you that not just you should give presentations, that you should teach giving presentations, but you should also write about it?
1: I began that blog in, I believe it's 2009. So it's been going for some time. And I got into it because I had some friends who were blogging about completely different topics and this whole idea about, oh, have a blog and you can have a voice in the world and share things. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe I could do a blog. I like writing. I like playing with language. And I thought about a bunch of different things that I could write about. And to cut a long story short, I decided, well, why not talk about public speaking? And when I began this, when I began the process, I had no idea how long I was going to go for. Most blogs, and I read the statistic then and I don't think much has changed. I think most blogs shut down after a month or two. And I thought, well, I'll just open up, you know, I'll, I'll create a free blog on WordPress.com and I'll just start putting stuff out and people started reading and people started engaging with it and people started interacting. And so I, I kept going. and. At one point, maybe a year into the process, I thought, am I gonna run out of things to say? And it's funny, you never run, there's always something to say. There's the the old saying, there are no new stories, there are only new ways of telling the old stories. I think in some respects, it's the same when it comes to writing. There's always something happening that you can comment on, a speech to analyze. And I've really enjoyed it. I've I've loved the process. I now have a self-hosted blog which involved a big transition from one platform to another, which was a lot of work. And in, in the process, I learned a lot about the technical side of blogging and the need to keep the site clean and clearing up broken links and things like that. But when it comes to the writing, I enjoy the process of putting my ideas down on paper, or electronic paper in this case, and putting them out into the world. I recognize at the same time that, and I think this is just an unfortunate byproduct of technology that people, fewer and fewer people read extensively. We're onto the the videos on YouTube, and I do have a YouTube channel, uh, the Instagram videos, this kind of thing. But then I remind myself, it's a planet of 8 billion people and there is no way I am ever going to reach all 8 billion or even a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the 8 billion, but I don't have to. And this is the this is the thing. There are people out there who do read and who do enjoy this kind of content. And so I'm happy to put it out there for them.
2: So in other words, you're planning to stick to writing mainly instead of switching to recording videos of penguins on tiktok I'd
1: like I'd like to do both
2: and <laughs> okay. I'd, I'd like to do
1: both I find the videos I've got I've got maybe oh, 25 to 30 videos on my YouTube channel and so people mm-hmm. if, if, here here here's a shameless plug if you go to my channel oh. and subscribe mm-hmm. I'd greatly appreciate it but mm-hmm. it's it's incredible and you know, you you've got experience with videos as well Lucas and you know even just putting together a 5 to 6 minute video The filming is easy, but then there's the whole editing process, which really takes time, but it's fun
2: to do. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit, I have limited experience with that. What I, the one thing that I learned is that unlike when you're sitting in a Toastmaster meeting and people can pay attention to you speaking for seven minutes, when I put out a video of myself speaking even three or four minutes just without, you know, any adding any special effects or without adding any special tricks to keep people's attention. Basically, nobody watched it till the end, especially, you know, because on the media, people can so easily change. So I think it's maybe easy to record one minute video mm-hmm. but to record a five, six, seven minute video that people watch till the end. That is quite a skill, I have to say.
1: It is. And, you know, you hit on the, the point that I was making earlier, even when it comes to videos, our attention span is dropping. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the answer to that is. I, I don't even know if there is an answer or this is just the, the, the evolution or the the, the devolution of, of the species towards lower attention. But it, it's just the way things
2: are. You already mentioned we try we're now covering different ways to share information, different media so of coming from those master speeches to blog posts to video do do you have any system? Because I think if all all that, all that is content. And whether you're writing a Toastmaster speech or a three-hour training, or you're recording a five-minute YouTube video, you have to have an idea. You have to have something to share. Do you have some, some way or a system, how you're working with your content? And do you have some way how you, for example, repurpose content from blog, to video, to training?
1: I've probably been bad in this respect in, in in terms of not having systems like some people have where they will post some certain content on LinkedIn on a certain day and then share it on Twitter on another day and then mm-hmm. post it on their website on another day. I have I am fairly active on LinkedIn and I like to engage with people there. And I, and I am engaging with people as well on Twitter. Where I do find that I can repurpose things is in my corporate trainings. For example, the things that I write about on my blog often give me ideas of things to work into my core uh, presentation skills, courses that I do with companies and organizations. And on those, even though there are some fundamental foundational principles, which more or less stay the same every time. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, every time before I go into a training, I look at everything I want to talk about. If I'm going to show slides, I look at every slide and I always change a few. I add something, I take something out, I adjust the order because it keeps it fresh for Mm -hmm. me. And I think it's it's important for the audience as well. I think everybody who goes into this type of a situation, a speaking situation, you have an obligation, once again, for the audience. So the blog has been a great help when it comes to corporate trainings and indeed for the the few YouTube videos that I have done, I have taken ideas from the blog, which essentially becomes a script, if you will, Mm -hmm. and then put them into video. So yes, mm-hmm. you, can, you can definitely cross-purpose content.
2: And if you compare, let's say, the Toastmaster speech format and the YouTube video format, how are these two different when you prepare something for a live audience and when you prepare something for the camera?
1: The biggest thing I learned about shooting videos is this. When I first started, even for a three minute, four minute video, I felt I had to do it in one take, one Mm -hmm. fluid take. and Mm -hmm. and, and It was always always so frustrating. You'd get three minutes into the four minutes and you'd mess up and you'd go, oh, damn, and then you'd stop and you'd have to start
2: again. These are bad habits of those masters, no, I think, maybe, or maybe where 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 do you think it's coming from?
1: I'm not sure. I think it's just this idea that because if it's, maybe there's something in the back of my mind that if it's going to be in video for preserve for all time. I want to have it done well. But mm-hmm. what I then learned from people who do a lot of videos is that no, you can have, you can have just a 10, 15 second segment
0: mm-hmm. and then
1: pause and then cut, and then you stitch it together and it looks fine on a YouTube video. So now mm-hmm. what I've done when I script my YouTube videos And I don't mean script in the sense of, I have to memorize every word, but more in the sense of what I'm gonna talk about. Sometimes I will have 45 different numbered things that I wanna talk about, but each one in length varies from five seconds, as short as five seconds to maybe 30, 40 seconds. Mm -hmm. That makes it a
2: lot easier. So they are basically like tweets just said on a video
1: no it's more in the sense that you have the whole script but then i'm thinking about am i going to be showing myself am i going to be speaking over another video that i'm showing uh-huh. in the corner it's things uh-huh. like that and this is where it, bec- it it really is filmmaking in that sense mm-hmm. uh it takes a lot of choreography and that's where the time element becomes become the time element is significant both in planning out how you're going to do it then actually doing it and then editing it and finally uploading it
2: do you think you'd be willing to share maybe as brief let's say a couple of steps let's imagine somebody listening to this and they want to put out their first youtube video they want to make it good what are the steps they need to take let's say it's an experienced Toastmaster but never recorded a video for YouTube. What is it they need to do?
1: Well I, I don't know I'm not sure that I'm the best one to give advice. however, there are a few things that I can think of and these are things that I had would never have thought of before. Imagine, I'm I'm assuming most people are familiar with YouTube, you go onto YouTube, what are the videos you click on? Often the thumbnail picture, the picture for the video, it's a huge thing, it creates, it can be the difference between 500 clicks or 30 clicks, in terms of how attractive it is. So I use, uh, I use Canva for making just really engaging, uh, what do you call them? Um, thumbnails or to attract people into the video. When it comes to the video itself, of course, things like you want good lighting, you want good sound, you want to practice all of these things. But fundamentally on the content, really, you want to have something that is either incredibly entertaining, or incredibly useful for people. These are the two basic types of, well, there's information videos as well. These are the three basic types of videos. It's always a bit, it's mildly frustrating to me when you put a whole lot of effort into a good educational video to help people and you get maybe a thousand thousand views. And then somebody puts a video of their cat swimming for 10 seconds in the toilet, and that's got three million. (laughs) And that's just the way it is. But really thinking about what it is you want to share with the audience. If you can, if you're into the educational videos, giving them something concrete that they can take away and start applying, that's, these are things that that make a big difference. And then of course, I think the more you do it, the more you become known and the more YouTube recognizes that you're doing videos. And then we get into the whole YouTube algorithm, which is a complete maze of of rules and and, tips that people who do videos well know how to use
2: Mm, I see okay but, but maybe coming just a couple of steps back now because then you said okay so you have to have a great idea something very entertaining and then so then you write out when it's going to be just you speaking what are other things because let's say the basic thing is for five minutes, you talk to the camera and that's what you post. But that probably is not how you're doing it, right? There also, you said there are some shots of something else also.
1: Sure. Sometimes I try and inject a little humor. I, I did a video that, do you remember there was, what is it, that series of movies with Liam Neeson, Taken? Somehow his, oh, daughter, yeah. his, his daughter always seems to, he, he's like the top spy in the world, but yet his daughter keeps getting kidnapped over and over and over. Yeah. But, but and there's that great line. What is he says? I, I will find you. No, I, I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and so that, I use that short clip in a video. And so I had to think, when am I going to insert that? And then I had to have a video of my reaction to that afterwards. So that's an example of really thinking through what it is that, that you're going to show. And of mm-hmm. course, when it comes to sharing other people's content, you have mm-hmm. to be very careful about not violating YouTube rules.
2: Yeah, how do you how do you do that? I I didn't know that you could you can even do that.
1: You can if if for example it's very there there are a whole bunch of rules, and I don't want to start giving legal advice on the podcast. There's a guy um <laughs> okay. there, there's a guy wait there's a guy whose name is I believe it's. Ron or Rob Corzine, C-O-R-Z-I-N-E. That's his last name. And he has a YouTube channel, which is fantastic because he gives all kinds of legal advice on how to avoid YouTube shutting down your channel because of copyright violation. So mm-hmm. you, there are ways in which you can use other content. It might be public domain content if it's very old. It might be commentary on something that is for an educational purpose. It could be a very short use for a clip that doesn't in any way detract from the creator's ability to use it. So you just want to be mindful of that.
2: And where, where do you, where did you even take that clip for, from taken by right now? Everything is on Netflix. So you don't even have these, these files to take it from. No,
1: it's it's that's on YouTube. Somebody else has put it up. Ah, on Uh
2: huh. Okay, wow. Amazing. Okay, so then you mix those things together. And then I imagine that you need to use some software to to edit and cut that video, right?
1: There's all kinds of different software. I, right now, I've just been using iMovie on the Mac, but there are more sophisticated versions.
2: And then do you somehow test it before you publish it? Do you you know have a couple of friends watch it to tell you, well, this part I, I, I dozed off over here and like this, I was too scared over here.
1: No, I mean, I look at it. I give it my my best assessment. Uh, my wife will sometimes have a look at it, and then mm-hmm. up it goes. And what I've come to realize, and this is this applies not just with YouTube videos, but a whole lot of things. There comes a point in time where you've just got to ship the work and get it out. Yeah. And you know, it people will there will be some people will love it, and some people will hate it, and most people will be somewhere in the middle. And that's just the way it is.
2: Coming back to the blog, and because I think it's these two things that are connected when, when you start doing something, be it writing a blog or doing YouTube videos, I think in the beginning, it's maybe exciting, but
0: also difficult
2: because you're perhaps not good at it. And it really takes time for you to, t- to pick up the skill to start shipping the things, at least in a quality that you're happy with. And I know that on the blog you have more than 800 posts collected over those—is it 13 years? It Something like if, that, yeah. Yeah, if I, if I, with my quick calculation, it means that you're doing more than 50 posts every year. So that's basically one post every week for this long time. Mm, how? What? Yeah. How come you are able to be so consistent and to stick with it for so long?
1: It's again i think once you start to do it you you have an obligation a, a commitment if you will a commitment to your readership they expect you to be uh, to be producing work regularly and mm-hmm. there have been times when i've when i've actually for various reasons either i've been so busy with work or other things where i've not been able to post that um, I've not posted as often as I'd wanted to, but those times have been far and few in between. Recently, I've not posted a lot, but just because my uh, the people who who do the technical work on the blog on the website they've been doing a major update and overhaul. But I always get excited when it comes to writing a post because I think it's another. I always think it's another way to connect with the audience and uh, to share something with them. One of the one of the things that I that I thought of as I was doing the posts was over the years, was to mix up the the types of posts. So sometimes mm-hmm. I will have very long, very detailed analyses of, of speeches. And then other times I might just have a very short post with a quote from somebody mm-hmm. famous that relates to public speaking. And I think it gives readers this nice variety. Sometimes they want something longer. Sometimes they want something shorter. So these are a couple of things that I've done.
2: Mm-hmm. And I mean, even with the quotes, it looks quite impressive. I think one of the last one is, is it quote number 344? So that's quite, quite a lot of quotes of public speaking that you collected over the years.
1: Yeah, and it's, they're not all related to public speaking per se. How, they're not about public speaking per se, but they all have some relationship to it if you step back and think about it.
0: And that's the end of the first part. So there's something I was thinking about, should I cut it here, or should I leave the whole interview with John in one piece? And I decided to cut it uh, in order to give you more space to reflect, because I believe there was a lot of interesting content already. Uh, Don't worry, you'll get the second part of our conversation with John in the next episode. I was taking notes and my takeaway, one of the key takeaways were the three important words, the I, the you and the we. And I have to say, I was impressed by John's dedication to focus outward during his presentations and during the research about his audience. If you like, one excellent takeaway for you. Before your next presentation, do a bit of an extra research about your audience. Try to find out more about who are they, what do they like, how they are similar to you and how they are different if you notice any differences in how you prepare your presentation and if you'd like to dig deeper, in the episode notes you will find links to everything that we have discussed today if you'd like to share your feedback feel free to connect with John on LinkedIn you get a link in the episode notes and of course if you'd like to stay in touch with Toast of the Wild East you can do that on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter by following at Toast Wild I'm gonna see you there bye bye